You're listening to a Burnt Toast production. The butchers find him at the greasy spoon. It has taken him too long to find the gate, pacing a stretch of Soho pavement and peering at the small scrap of map the girl had given him. The map, like all such maps, is a lie. It's the lie he is wanting, but the 3am streetlight buries its biggest fib. In the end, he dares switch his phone back on and use the torch to find his way. And there it is. Bernie's calf. It's fogged windows like welcome lanterns in the gloom. Sanctuary. He's met by a fog of bacon. The interior of the cafe promises salmonella, yellowed fat gathering in crevices and grime making a feature of the cracks in the plasterwork. This place belongs to a lost, dusky age of British cuisine, when an awareness of cholesterol, hygiene and flavour was held only by immigrants or medical professionals. His office suit doesn't fit the place, The other punters wear donkey jackets and Macintoshes. An old woman in a head hanky stares at him as her egg sandwich pours glistening orange yolk across her fingers. There's no sign of the girl. He checks his watch as if it could tell him anything useful. With a start, he switches off his phone in his pocket. Resigning himself to a long wait, he picks up one of the typed menus from between two plastic tomatoes of ketchup. He doesn't know what he wants. He doesn't even know if he wants to eat. Now he thinks about it, he isn't entirely sure he knows who he is. There is a curious stillness inside him that is quite new. Nothing pulls him in any direction. Nothing feels right or wrong. Nothing makes him study the menu for something he has no obligation to eat. The cafe's dirty charm doesn't inspire him to order anything more substantial than a mug of tea, which arrives already too strong, a tea bag floating like something neglected in a pond. The cafe's owner, a portly middle-aged bloke with coffee in his shirt and brill cream in his hair, wipes his nose on the back of his wrist as he delivers it. Are you paying, then? He pulls out a crumpled fiver. I've only got cash, sorry. Turning back for the kitchen, the owner mutters something about tourists and shoves the note in his pocket without any murmur of change. He wonders if he feels free. He has spent much of his life wondering how it would feel to live without any sense of destiny. Now he is somewhere fate can't touch him, and he only feels scared. Is that who he is, when he isn't himself? A coward? Everything he is, and should be, is in a jar in his rucksack, still slung across his right shoulder. All of him, and more than that, so much more than anyone could know. The girl still isn't here. She'd been there tonight. She'd saved him. Why didn't she come? He looks at his watch again, out of habit. Is it his habit? Or has he picked it up from the other bloke? Will he lose it? Are there things he will miss now he is nobody? The cafe door jingles. A second later, it smashes. A butcher has thrown it open with a tanned arm, fists like a palmer ham. Glass explodes over the liner in a grim celebration. He turns and the butcher sees him. Its good eye locks onto him. Its other checks for trouble. It snatches one of the smaller knives from its grubby leather belt and strides straight for him, crashing through a pair of wooden tables, punters and all, like they should have known better than to be there. Once, he would have known what to do. He would have felt the pull of possibility. Doors opening and closing, mapping escape or peril. Tonight, he is on his own. He picks up the tea he hasn't drunk and throws it in the butcher's face. The butcher's head steams. The butcher does not slow. He grabs both of the ketchup tomatoes and blasts red sauce in the butcher's mismatched eyes, blinding it. 
He steps aside as the butcher crashes through his table into the counter where its knife sticks fast in the laminex. He runs for the door, but another butcher is waiting, tall and thin, bald on the side, a triangle of scalp pasting on thick black hair. It grins at him with someone else's teeth and takes a cleaver from its belt. It knows what is in his rucksack. He runs back through the cafe towards the kitchen. As he passes, the first butcher slashes at him with a paring knife. The blade slips through his suit jacket and shirt with terrifying politeness. You won't even know I'm here. Even the gash to his right bicep is too clean and swift to hurt until the knife's business is done. By the time he is crashing through the kitchen, scattering sieves and fry pans in his wake, it hurts like hell. The butchers follow, relentless, unbothered. He tumbles out the back door into a sulfurous alley, light rain oily on the cobbles, blood soaking his shirt cuff. He stops. He doesn't know which way to go. There are no clues, no map. In his haste and hesitation, he slips on the back step and rolls headfirst into the gutter. A scrap of brick dents his forehead. He tastes blood in his mouth. One of the butchers splinters the back door of the cafe. He doesn't look to see which one. As he fades into nothing, he can hear horses. He wonders if they are for him. The Terrible Business of Salmon and Dusk Written and read by Mike Bartlett. Book one, How to Disappear Completely. Episode three. Theo is woken by a car alarm. There is already a tentative suggestion of pale light through the bamboo blinds, as if the whole day has been woken early, not just the street. She feels beside the bed for her watch, dips her fingers into a half-finished glass of wine, and starts to feel like day-old porridge. Rolling over, she finds the bed empty. There is unease in her gut, even now, but it might be the hangover. They argued last night. Josh had seemed quiet on the night bus home, but she wasn't sure that was her fault. The hangover tightens its melancholic grip. Soon, everything will be her fault. She lies there in darkness, listening to housemate voices in the hall, counting the opening and closing of the front door, the jangles of keys. Her bladder is full, but she can't face company. Can't even bring herself to get dressed. Lifting the duvet, she's about to make a toilet run starkers when she hears footsteps creak overhead. Bugger it. In three months, she has never met the sixth flatmate who lives in the box room at the back of the first floor. Her other flatmates had, although each has been vague on the details. He's a writer. So had said Bettina, the serious-faced German. Keeps odd hours, tall with glasses, always pays his rent. Moved in a few weeks before you did. Over a pint a few nights later, Canadian Justin had averred, I wouldn't call him tall, and I don't remember glasses. He's a student. Japanese, doesn't speak much English, keeps to himself. Guess it's a cultural thing, eh? Ellie was a student. She was also English, one of the few bona fide Brits Theo had met since moving to London. She had a small child in Eastbourne she never talked about. Passing a tinfoil curry during Theo's first house meal, she had said, He's not Japanese. Well, maybe not Japanese, Justin said, scratching his beard. And he's not a student or a writer. I am certain I heard writer. Bettina said. He works nights in a warehouse, Amazon or something. I've heard him come in around four. 
He usually leaves before we get home from work. There's no big mystery. Theo had watched all this with a kind of ironic enjoyment, suspecting there was a punchline pending. This was a house initiation ritual, perhaps, a, a rolling joke at the expense of the newcomers. The ghost in the box room. Josh had shrugged it off. Theo had tried to. She wanted to get better at that. But you have seen him. Ellie had hesitated. Of course, Justin added. We all have. When we interviewed him, yes? Bettina said. All three looked awkward and embarrassed. Theo had expected the joke to die there, but it went on. She tried not to take it to heart. One odd thing. There was evidence of a sixth flatmate. Dirty dishes, a fogged bathroom mirror, footsteps where nobody else should be home. Josh had been resolute in his apathy. Far as I'm concerned, a flatmate you never see is the best kind of flatmate. Over the next few weeks, Theo's intense curiosity subsided into a kind of delicious anticipation. She realised that the mystery was more enjoyable than any answers could be. Once or twice she had hesitated on opening her bedroom door, not wanting to bump into number six in the hallway. She preferred living with a multitude of possible flatmates rather than a single, no doubt disappointing, certainty. She listens for his footsteps now. Here's another crack that could be him, rats, or a poltergeist. Bladder or no, she is half asleep again before something bothers her. Josh didn't say goodbye. That was out of character. Most mornings he takes a cruel pleasure in waking her, especially from a hangover. Sitting up, she realises what else is missing. Everything. Half of everything, at least. Every sign or relic of Josh has gone. Every photo, every dirty sock, the pile of trashy books he bought from the market in Greenwich. There was nothing in this room that Theo hasn't put there. Josh? Her voice sounds odd in the hollow room. It echoes back at her, accusing her of something she doesn't yet understand. Gripped by a nameless panic, she pulls on yesterday's outfit and, stumbling into the hall, finds her coat hanging alone on the rack by the door. Josh's bike, ignored since first bought on loot, has vanished. The bathroom door opens without her knocking, and the tiles are hiding nothing. The air is cold and dry. There is no toothbrush beside hers in the I Heart Perth mug, no sign of his razor in the soap tray. She realises now what she has known with impossible certainty since she woke. Josh has gone. Hurrying back downstairs, she digs through the pockets of her coat for her phone, expecting a text message. Sorry, thanks for everything. You're scary when you're angry. Bye! But there are no messages. This silence frightens more than angers her. What could she have done to deserve such cruelty? She thumbs through to her recently called list, ready to have it out. His number is gone. Work, mobile, gone. Theo catches her forehead. Has he really taken the trouble to delete himself? She logs into her Gmail. He isn't there either. Past messages and emails, photos of past shared dinners, erased. With deft thoroughness, he has cut himself from her life. There is noise from the kitchen. She tidies away her panic and allows herself a few moments of hope. But it is only Bettina, dressed for work with a triangle of toast between her teeth, standing at the end of the table and checking email on her laptop. She lifts her eyebrows at Theo as she enters. Sorry, I thought you'd gone, Theo says, and hesitates. She isn't sure how to ask the pending question. Did you see Josh this morning? Annoyed at the interruption, 
Bettina takes a bite of her toast. Who is Josh? The joke is thin, more than she expects from Bettina, but she takes it. Yeah, I've been asking myself that a lot lately. I'm sorry? I mean, he's a mystery sometimes, most of the time these days. Who? Now come the stirrings of fear in her gut. Josh? Who is Josh? Theo laughs, just once. A sting of embarrassment leaves a welt of anger in her chest. Has this woman really never learned his name? My boyfriend? I didn't know you had a boyfriend. It's not a problem. We're a share house, not a nunnery. You're not being serious? Bettina scoffed. Why would I care if you get a boyfriend? We were always together, when we first got the room. Well, you needn't have kept it a secret. I didn't. We didn't. Why are you doing this? Doing what? He deleted his number from my phone. All his texts and emails. Okay, that's him. But what have I done to you? Bettina snaps her laptop shut and shoves it in her armpit. Theo, I don't know what you're talking about. Where is he? I'm going to be late. As she turns to go, Bettina takes her first good look at Theo. Her irritation subsides into concern. Theo, honestly, I don't know any Josh. I've never met Josh. I don't know anything about him. If you have a boyfriend, I don't care. I'm not sure why you think it has anything to do with me. Okay, <laughs> sorry. Right, I'm losing it. He'll turn up. It's fine. Okay, Bettina hesitates, measuring lateness against decency, taking in Theo's crumpled work clothes. You know it's rent week next week. I know, yes. Theo waits for the footsteps down the hall, the front door closing, before heading once more for her coat to retrieve her cigarettes. Standing by the open kitchen window, she allows herself to feel the first cold notes of sorrow. She lets her eyes mist and tucks a strand of copper hair behind her right ear. Already, she's starting to be practical. There are bills pending, rent is due. She can console herself with economics. If he wants to ghost her, he can ghost her. It was his problem. No, sod that. She has to know. You've been listening to The Terrible Business of Salmon and Dusk. Book One, How to Disappear Completely. Written and read by Mike Bartlett. been listening to a Burnt Toast production.